Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to just still ourselves and be quiet before you. And we need to desperately hear from you. Uh, These friends do not need my wisdom. They don't need to hear my words. They desperately need your word. We all do. It's our life. It gives life. And it sustains life. And so open our eyes to see you in all your majesty. That even as our eyes are opened, our hearts would grow larger, more in love with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1944. It was a cold winter night, March 24th, in a prison of war camp in Germany, Sagan, Germany. It was called Stalag Luft No. 3. And for the last year, the American and British prisoners of war had been planning an escape and had been working the plan so that over the last year, they had tunneled their way from their barracks and their showers all the way underground to the other side of the barbed wire fences. And so it was on that night where some 79 of those POWs crawled through their hand-dug tunnels out into the cold winter's night. It was indeed a great escape. In fact, it's the true story that lies behind the movie with that same title, The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen back in 1963, winning some three Academy Awards. And if you're like me, you love those kinds of stories. And if that's true, You're going to love the story we have from God's Word. It is the quintessential great escape story. We're hitting the fast-forward button as we turn the page from Genesis to the Exodus. In fact, from the end of Genesis to where we are in Exodus, some 430 years go by. And just to kind of review where we've been, last week we were talking about Abraham His descendant, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons. Those sons become the tribal leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And you remember he had a favorite son. His name was Joseph. And uh, because he was the favorite son, his brothers hated him. And they decided one day to get rid of him. So they threw him in a pit. We're about to kill him and change their mind. Decide to sell him as a slave to a bunch of Ishmaelites for a few pieces of silver. And in God's good providence, Joseph was able to say later, brothers, you meant it for evil. I was begging you to save my life. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to save a people. So God was preparing to save his people even as he uh, allowed his wicked brothers to send him on ahead into Egypt where he had a lot of hard things happen and ended up in prison and in prison ended up interpreting the dream of the cupbearer of Pharaoh who was in prison who then is released and tells Pharaoh when he's trying to figure out one of his dreams, I know a guy who can tell you it. And brought out Joseph, he interprets the dream, and he is promoted to the number two position in the whole kingdom 
of Egypt. And the dream had to do with seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And it's in those seven years of famine that Jacob's family is reunited. And that's where the book of Genesis ends. Seventy in all in Egypt. And Joseph on his deathbed making his sons promise that when you go to the promised land that was promised to our great-grandfather, that you'll take my mummified bones with you. And so now we hit the fast-forward button. We go from the promised land into Egypt, from that ram caught in the thicket in Genesis chapter 22 to the Passover lamb that's sacrificed in Exodus 12. We go from Father Abraham, the father of the multitudes, to Moses, the leader of millions. And we come to the great story of the Exodus. And so when we turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, you'll find it on page 44 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. We read these ominous words. Verse 8. Then a new king, a new pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph. He forgot about what Joseph did in saving his people. He came to power in Egypt and he said, Look, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so his plan is seen down in verse 22. Take every newborn baby boy and drown him in the river Nile. And so it's in that context that Moses is born. God's chosen deliverer is born at the time where you'd say, not a good time to be born because all of the little baby boys of his generation were being snatched from their mother's arms and drowned in the river, but not Moses. For the first three months of his life, he was hid successfully by his mother in her home. And then she realized he's getting too big. His crying would be noticeable. So she weaves a basket of reeds and coats it with pitch and lies little Moses right there in that reed basket and places him on the banks of the Nile River in the marshes. And in God's great providence, where he controls all of history, he has that little baby cry right as Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, is bathing. She sends one of her servant girls to fetch the basket, and lo and behold, it's a Hebrew child. It's Moses. His very name means to draw out. He was drawn out of the water. God rescued him that he might be a rescuer of God's people. And he grows up in the palace. In fact, he spends the first 40 years of his life there in the palace. Stephen writes about this and talks about it. It's recorded in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. And here's what we know. Verse 22, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. That's going to be a surprise when we hear his excuses to God about not being able to speak so well. But Stephen tells us he was powerful in speech. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites because he identified with them. In fact, Hebrews eleven twenty four and 25 says that he suffered mistreatment by choosing to be identified as a Hebrew instead of as Pharaoh's daughter's son. 
You want to be identified with those slaves rather than as a prince of Egypt. And so we read back in in Acts chapter 7 that he decides to go visit them. In verse 24, he saw one of them, his Israelite brother, being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Note verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. It was the right idea. His timing was a little off, like by 40 years. And God's, in effect, saying, Moses, it's not about your outstretched arm. You're not going to lead a rebellion where you physically conquer the Egyptians and break out. It's going to be by my outstretched arm. And no one's going to miss who did it. So we go on in the story. The next day, Moses is out looking around, and he sees couple of his brothers, Israelite brothers, in a tiff. They're having it out. They're ready to come to blows. He says, brothers, what are you doing? We've got to stick together. Don't hurt each other. One of them says, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? Wow, when Moses heard the word was out, Moses was out of Egypt. He was hightailing it for the Midian wilderness off to Arabia. And that's where he spends the next 40 years of his life. Quite a change from the palace to the barren tundra of Midian's desert. And there he tended these intellectually challenged animals called sheep for some 40 years. Perfect training for a future leader. Well, after 40 years, we read that he is now 80. I don't know if there's any septuagenarians or octogenarians or retirees or soon to be. But it's good to know that Moses gets his call from God when he's 80. That's a good reminder that God can use us at any time. And we ought to be open, even in our 80s, to what he has for us to do. How great it was last night when a retired couple came up to me and said, Pastor, we want you to pray for us. They said, you know, we're retired. And my wife soon, I'm retired. My wife's soon to be retired. And and we just want to know what God wants us to do next. That's the spirit that's here in this text at age 80. And he meets God, and God meets him in this burning bush. You can read about it in chapter 3, verse 4. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And in verse 11, Moses says, you got the wrong guy, Lord. Who am I? Who am I that I should go and talk to Pharaoh and lead your people out of Egypt? Don't you remember, Lord? I'm a fugitive. In fact, I'm a murderer. I'm on the Egyptian most wanted list. My mug is up in all the post offices in Egypt. You got the wrong guy. Moses, he says, I don't have the wrong guy. You got your eyes on the wrong guy. It's not about you. It's about me. And I'm going to be with you. Moses says, well, there's another problem. Lord, last time I left, there was a question ringing in my ears. Who made you ruler and judge? So now I'm going to come back and say, God wants me to lead you out of Egypt. And they're going to say, well, who says? So what am I supposed to say? A burning bush sent me? That's not going to work. God says, you tell him, I am who I am. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is the one who sends you. But, 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 Lord, I don't speak so well. I'm not eloquent. He says, don't worry about it, Moses. I'm going to send your brother Aaron. You're going to meet him in just a few days here. He'll be your mouthpiece. And finally, he says in verse 14, chapter 3, Sovereign Lord, will you just please send someone else? I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I've grown to like life in the wilderness with my sheep. It's a simple life. I like that. Leading a whole bunch of people out of Egypt, I don't like that. Can you send someone else? God gets angry, and Moses gets moving. And on the way back to Egypt, he meets his brother. And he tells him what God had told him. And they go and they talk to the leaders, the elders of the Israelite tribes. And they tell him what God has said. And then they go to Pharaoh and they say to Pharaoh on behalf of God, let my people go. That's what God says. We need to go out in the wilderness and worship our God. And Pharaoh laughs and says, are you kidding? You think I'm going to let you guys go? I know who's buttering our bread here in Egypt, and I'm not letting you go. No way. In fact, just the mention of something like this makes it clear in my mind that you've got too much time on your hand, you're lazy, and I need to make life a little difficult for you. And so the same quote of bricks, but no longer am I supplying the straw. Get your own straw. Not so good. In fact, it's really interesting to note that as... As Moses and Aaron, his brother, are following God's will, it gets harder for them, not easier. What did someone say to you when they said, you ought to consider being a Christ follower? Did they say that to you? It's not a popular thing. It's not very motivational to find out that following Christ may mean life can get more difficult. You know, we live in a day when people make all kinds of promises about the gospel, health, and wealth, and prosperity. That's not the gospel. That's another gospel. Jesus says, you pick up your cross and follow me. It's cross time today on this earth. The crown and the health and no more tears and no more death and no more sorrow and the riches of heaven are for heaven. We just note that. As God's people followed God's word 
it got harder for them, not easier. Well, God made his plan clear. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 6, Moses, this is what I want you to say to the Israelites. So we read this. Therefore say to the Israelites, Exodus 6, 6, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as possession. I am the Lord. And we note in verse 7 that important phrase that I will take you as my own people and will be your God. That God's whole point here is not just to save him out of a bad situation but to save him into a relationship. Well, if things are going from bad to worse in Israel, it's beginning to go bad to worse for Egypt. For God starts to unroll the plagues. These 10 plagues are plagues of judgment. Judgment against these wicked Egyptians. Judgment against their gods. In fact, every plague has an Egyptian deity in view. So there was a river god. And so when that first plague was turning the the waters of the Nile to blood. It was a frontal attack on that deity. And it was a demonstration to Pharaoh, to Israel, to the whole world that God alone is God. There is not a pantheon of gods. There is only one God, and he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants there in Egypt. And so the plagues unroll. There's water into blood. And then there are the gnats. And then there are the frogs and the livestock and the boils and the hail and the locusts and the darkness. And then there's that final plague of death. And it's not until then that the hard-hearted Pharaoh has a change of mind. This plague would affect everyone the Israelite camp, as well as the Egyptians. And so there are very important instructions given to God's people that they might be saved from the angel of the Lord that was going to come and pass over the land and he was going to kill every firstborn male and every firstborn of all the livestock. And so God, through Moses, said to his people, here's what you need to do to be delivered from death and the angel of death. You need to take a male one-year-old lamb, spotless, without defect, perfect, no broken bones. You take that lamb into your home and after four days of caring for it, you sacrifice that lamb. And the father sacrificed the lamb and he took that blood and he applied it on the sides and over the top, the lintel of the door. And God says, when the angel of death comes and sees the blood on your door, he will pass over it. Hence the name Passover. This is such an important event in the life of Israel. It begins the calendar for Israel. In fact, it would be a feast that they would celebrate year after year after year. And when you go back to the text in Exodus chapter 12, we find out the Israelites obeyed. Verse 28. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. 
and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we'll all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. It's the very stuff that's going to go into the making of the tabernacle. That silver and gold and fine linen. It's also the very stuff that they gave Aaron when he fashions the idol, the golden calf. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children, conservatively at least 2 million. And so they're going out in broad daylight, not through the tunnels at night. Two million strong, not 79. Most of the 79, by the way, didn't make it. All of the Israelites did. In fact, their captors were begging them to leave and giving them their riches as they left. And the scriptures tell us that God would lead them during the day. There was a cloud And he manifested his presence in that cloud. And as the cloud went and where it went, Moses and the Israelites followed. At night, it was a pillar of fire. They never lost sight of God as he led them. And as God led them out, he didn't lead them through the direct route to the Philistines, through the direct land to the promised land, direct route there, but through, because going that way would mean going through Philistia. It'd mean going up against the Philistines. It meant war. And Moses and God better knew that they weren't battle ready. So he took him another route, took him by the route of the sea. And in fact, as God is leading his people, he's also drawing out Pharaoh's army because he's not done with Pharaoh yet. And as Pharaoh gets wind that they're kind of lost there in the wilderness, doubling around and seems confused, he has a change of mind consistent with his other changes of mind. He says, boys, let's mount up and ride. Let's get them. So the armies mobilize and the chariots come and there are are God's people. Israel's right up against the Red Sea. And as they look over their shoulders on the horizon, the dust of Pharaoh's chariots rises off the surface and they're terrified and they're mad. Moses, what are you doing? It'd be better that we were slaves in Egypt than to die here in the wilderness. And Moses, understanding their fear, is a very merciful leader. And he says, hey, don't be afraid. Be still. Stand still and watch what God's going to do. You think you're in a bind where there's no way out? It's the perfect place to show how God's going to fight for us. So just watch. And what they saw happen first is the pillar of fire that was in front of them by the Red Sea 
picked up and moved and went to the rear of the camp. And it became the defense and shield between them and the Egyptians all through that night. And then this wind blew up from the east and it blew over the waters. And over that night, the waters parted so that there was dry ground and a dry path for all two million to walk through. And walk through they did. To their utter amazement, looking at the water on either side as they walked through the middle. Maybe you heard the story about actually it wasn't that deep of a sea really wasn't a miracle the crossing of the red sea there's lots of these little low lion lakes and marshes this little girl heard that same thing from her teacher who didn't believe in miracles and as the little girl started thinking about it it wasn't a miracle it was just a few inches deep she was puzzled and then her eyes grew big and she had a big smile and her teacher said well Susie what, what are you thinking she said well then it was an even greater miracle That means that all of Pharaoh's army drowned in just a few inches of water. (laughs) Well, Pharaoh's army comes bolting after him. Hey, it's dry ground. There's a path. We're going. And as they go, they realize they're in a losing battle. Wheels start falling off. They get bogged down in what was dry ground is now mud and the waters cascade and they are wiped out. And when they get to the other side, deliverance brings one thing, a song. And man was there singing. Moses is singing, his sister's singing, and they're dancing, and the tambourines are going. They're praising God who has fought for them, the warrior God who's hurled the Egyptian rider into the sea. Their enemy has been destroyed, and it brings a song. And that's one of the unique things about Christianity is we're a people who sing. It's so fitting that we're singing to each other and to our God because people who've been rescued by God sing. That's what they did. Well, the story goes on. And what happens is that over three months' time, they wander through the wilderness until they get back to the mountain where God first revealed himself in that burning bush. I mean, there's been some serious challenges. Water and food, and God supplied it all. The manna from heaven, the quail, water gushing out from rocks. But now they're at the mountain, and they're given the law of God. And it's really important that we understand the chronology here, because it's a theological point, that they're delivered by God's gracious hand. They're delivered by taking God at his word so that they applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts of their home. And now God brings them into the land and he gives them the law. In other words, we are not made right before God and with God through keeping the law. But because of God's gracious provision, he gives us the law. And that's an important theological point. It's the same point made in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 when it says, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, lest we would boast. It's a free gift of God. But then it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So it's not pursuing good works that bring us into the relationship. It's not by pursuing the law and saying, I've kept the Ten Commandments for the purpose of the law on a number of counts, will be just the opposite. So that brings up the question, why the law? 
Well, there's the first reason. It reveals God's holy character. As we understand the law, we understand about God, that he's holy, that he's righteous and good, just like the word he gives us. That's what Romans 7.12 says. It also reveals how we're to live as his people. It says, this is how you live with each other. This is how you're to live with me. This is how you're to worship me. And as you follow that, it'll bring blessing to your life. But not only that, it revealed that they're sinners, that we're sinners. Here's the illustration I use. Um, When I'm driving down the street and I see a police car, I'm really cognizant of the laws. I haven't been to that point, but all of a sudden I am. First thing I do is seatbelt. Yep, seatbelt's on. Speedometer, okay, we're in the limit. You see, the law reveals sin. And if I'm not, if I don't have my seatbelt on, if I'm going over the limit, it's doing just that. And Paul says in Romans 3 that that's exactly what the law does. So we read, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. That's just what we've been saying. We're not made right by keeping the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. One of the gracious provisions of the law is that you and I are lawbreakers. And that gives us the last thing that's great about the law. It points us to a savior. It reveals our need for a savior who did keep the law. In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he fulfills it as he perfectly kept the law. Now the law, and there's a whole bunch of them. There's hundreds of them in the Old Testament. They're they're summed up in the 10, the great, Ten Commandments. And Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments with two commandments. So we heard Jackie speak them to us from Matthew 22. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say that the law and all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, hangs on those two commandments. Loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. And so when you think about the Ten Commandments and those two tablets of stone that God inscribed the commandments into, just to make sure in our minds that these aren't suggestions, it's written in stone, this is the real deal, follow it. The first tablet is all about loving God. No God, no graven images, not taking his name in vain, remembering the Sabbath. That's all about loving God. And then when we move from the second tablet to commandments 5 through 10 from honoring our mother and father not lying and stealing and bearing false witness and committing adultery and all the rest no coveting that's loving your neighbor as yourself that helps us as we understand the law so the law was a gracious provision that comes once the relationship has been established And Galatians says that that law was given to point us to Christ. It's like a tutor that's telling us, hey, we need Christ. So the law is good. It's righteous and holy. But it's all been fulfilled in Christ. He perfectly kept it. Well, then the rest of the book of Exodus talks about this building. I mean, it goes into great detail about all the different aspects of this building, which was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle becomes God's residence because God's point here is, I want a relationship with you. I want to restore what we've lost in the garden with Adam and Eve where I lived with them and walked with them and talked with them. And so I I haven't just taken you out of Egypt. I've brought you back into a relationship with myself. 
And so you see the picture on the screen. And that's how they did it. Three tribes on each of the four sides. God's presence resting over this tabernacle. And it answers the question, how can a holy God live amongst his sinful people? And it's in a tabernacle where there's a priest who is mediating and a mediator between God and man. And how does he do it? He offers sacrifices for sin. That's what the tabernacle is all about. And it's going back to the garden. It's pointing forward to the temple that Solomon built. It's pointing forward to Christ, who John 1.14 says, he came in the flesh and he lived. Literally, the word is he tabernacled. So God's presence moves from a building and a place to a person in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. And then amazingly, it moves to us who know Christ as Savior. So that 1 Corinthians 3 will say, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't ever confuse yourself in this building being the house of God. This isn't God's house. This is just a really nice rain shelter. Glad to have it. We as believers are God's house. And as Brian reminded us about five weeks ago from First Peter, that we are the living stones that are being built together in a spiritual house. So it's not just us individually who know Christ, but it's us together. And then that tabernacle motif finds its fullness in heaven where God's people are now dwelling with God. God and his people together in heaven. It's beautiful. So we close with a lesson to learn a warning to heed, and a savior to celebrate. First, the lesson of the wilderness. That was, a hard, that was a hard spot for Moses. I mean, a really hard spot. It was radically different from life in the palace. And yet it was a good place for him. It was a growing place for him. It was a place where God met him, revealed himself to him. And so if you find yourself in a really tough time right now, you'd say it's like a wilderness experience. Know that God does good things in the midst of hard places. And it became the perfect place to prepare Moses for the job God had for him. Serving a bunch of dumb animals, meeting their needs, feeding them, protecting them, leading them, guiding them. And it's a good lesson on how God prepares leaders. You don't climb the ladder of success in God's kingdom. It's not a movement up. It's totally different. You want to go up in God's kingdom? You go down in servanthood. You aspire to be a leader? Then learn to serve. It's the lesson of the wilderness. There's a great warning to heed, and it's the lesson of the golden calf. Here they've seen God do all these amazing things. Moses is up on the mountain, and after 40 days, they're pretty sure that maybe he's, maybe he's dead. And so they say, Aaron... We need some help. Will you make us a God? And here's the wicked thing they ask for. Make us a God who will go out before us. These people who just days ago had seen God's pillar of fire at night and the cloud in the day walked through the dry ground of the Red Sea, walked out with the plunder of Egypt, had seen the army routed in the seas, are now wanting a new God to go out before them. They'd forgotten about God's acts. And they forgot about what God had called them to be, his people. Heed the warning. We are people that have a history that is far greater than theirs. Let us not forget 
what God has done. And speaking about that greater history, the whole point of the great escape in the Old Testament is pointing to the greater escape in the New Testament. What happened physically as they were saved from the power of Egyptian slavery and from death happened spiritually through Christ as we're saved from the power of the enslaving nature of sin and the result of that sin, which is death, separation from God. Life without him forever. And so the New Testament picks up the story. In fact, one of the amazing things is Christ is called the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's how he's greeted when he walks into the scene. And John the Baptist hails him as such. Jesus dies during the celebration of Passover. When he's eating that last supper with his disciples, they're celebrating Passover. And everything about Passover, the bitter herbs and the lamb, went all the way back to that great escape. And Jesus says, I'm going to bring it forward now and help you see that that great escape was pointing to a greater escape. I'm the Passover lamb. This bread is my body. This cup, which now seals the new covenant, is sealed in my blood. He is the Passover lamb. He is the priest, the one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, the man Christ Jesus. And the priest was also the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. And friends, we have a Savior to celebrate. And I don't know if you know personally the victory that you can have through Christ over the enslaving nature of sin. And if you don't believe in the enslaving nature of sin, just keep reading your paper. You just keep reading your paper because it's all around us. It's all around us. Here's what the scriptures say. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Christ. And you just gotta say, Connect the dots. How were they saved in the Old Testament? It was the blood. But it wasn't just believing in the blood. It was applying the blood. It was just saying, this sounds like a good idea. They had to, they had to obey it. They believed God's word. They took him at his word. How are we saved today? By applying the blood. By believing that Christ died on the cross for me. And by faith saying, I'm covered in the blood. And you're going to look at the blood, Christ's life, not my life. Because my life doesn't measure up, God, but his does. And so I'm trusting in the blood. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't his outstretched arm. God, it's not me. It's your son, the deliverer like Moses. And why did he do that? For a relationship. And so if you don't have that relationship, you need to know that's why Christ died. Not just to take care of our problem of death and sin but to bring us to himself in relationship and it was more than that so if you have that relationship to remember that he said I want you to be a kingdom of priests in the Old Testament and Peter picks up on that you're a chosen people a holy nation a kingdom of priests so that we now are the people who declare the message we're part of the rescue mission of God calling people to a savior who died to rescue them from sin and the scriptures say If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. So, Lord, we think of 
those who don't know that freedom. And we pray that they would believe your word and apply the blood of your son to their own life. And we pray that we would never forget what you've done looking for other gods to lead us. We pray that we would always remember the cross and that would always bring a song and that our song would draw people to yourself that you're rescuing until you come. Thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.